Thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah, and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have about birding topics. We are definitely not experts in anything that we discuss that might be controversial. We want you to remember that there are own opinions, and they might be different from yours. It's been a busy couple weeks since we've talked to you all. Yeah, seriously, a few, a few weeks. Yeah. A few, few weeks longer than normal. Yeah, and... You know, we've been busy with work and, like, everything that's going on in the world, and we hope that you're doing well. Seriously. So, before we get into anything, we had a new review um, from uh, Paul. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm going to butcher your name. I probably should know how to pronounce this, but I don't. Um, Somo from uh, Varmints. Which is another podcast that if you guys haven't checked out, it's great. Check it out. Yeah, for sure. They're all all about all sorts of different animals. Um, But uh, he says, uh, this podcast and a couple others have really inspired me to get outside and go birding more often. It's really excellent. Thanks for making it. Well, thank you, Paul. That's so nice of you. And that's, you know, that's kind of why we created this podcast is to inspire people to get out and go birding and explore new places and see new birds and see the same birds. Well, maybe they could just get out and see other things like trees and insects and yeah, mosquitoes. I guess so. <laughs> mosquitoes. Yeah. Hey, I like to look at mosquitoes sometimes. I know. I feel like it's I... kind s- of exciting. We saw something today when we were out that I don't know if it was a mosquito. It had these really long dangly legs, but they were like right Oh, was in that front. the thing that you were like, oh, what's that thing in front of my face? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it just kind of like floated right there. It was, it was interesting looking yeah. and a little terrifying. It's bird food, so it's it, it belongs on this podcast. Are it's you okay. sure? Yeah. Are you sure it's not poisonous? I don't know. Maybe it's venomous. Maybe it'll like bite the birds and... <laughs> if it has any venom in it, I don't think it could do harm to anything. <laughs> but, you know, mosquitoes, I guess it's not... Was it technically venom? Their saliva it causes think, an allergic reaction. I think it's just an allergic reaction because they, anti, they are antihistamines, like, or are histamines attack it, so they... Well, you know how people are about mosquitoes. They, like, make up all tons of stuff. That's true. You, yeah. like, su- suck out their venom? Or... Well, I I, yeah. I always get people that are like, I'm allergic to mosquitoes. And it's like, I'm pretty sure 99% of people are allergic to mosquitoes. I think to some level, probably. Yeah. I'm not I mean, a mosquito it, expert. Well, it's just, like, the ver- you know, the how how much you react. Because yeah. I react a lot more than you do. Yeah. But you still get reactions. Oh, I still get reaction, but it goes away within a few minutes. Well, so. that's all Anyways, food. <laughs> moving on, away from mosquitoes. So thank you, Paul. <laughs> um, so our top listenership for our last episode, um, which it's been a while, so more and more people have listened as I've been trying to like keep up with who the top listenership is. And by far, it is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So thank you all for checking in. No one's corrected me on the name. So I'm just assuming it's Bethlehem. It must be good. Yeah. Yeah, You're doing good. Um, And then there was a four-way tie for second. We've got Blackheath, England. You guys are still in there. Seattle, Washington. Warrington. So our hometown-ish area. Hometown-ish. Which which is really nice. You know, some of our local friends are listening. They're probably in a different zip code than us, but it's all right. Um, (laughs) Even if they're in a different zip code, there's still not that many people in our area. The county's not very populated. But thank you for tuning in to our local friends. And then also Columbus, Ohio was big, but also the episode was about a Columbus or an Ohio-based organization. Yeah, so they, so they better have been listening. But just keep it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, seriously. So thank you all for tuning in and everyone else, even if I didn't say your town name. And if you want me to try to butcher it for the next one, please try to get your weird town name and everybody in it to listen, and then I'll um, pronounce it poorly. Yeah. 
So last week, or last cycle, we decided to forego putting out an episode of Hannah and Erica Birding in favor of spending all of our efforts and energies um, that we would have used to put in, for putting out that episode in advertising and promoting Black Voices. So um, in honor of uh, Black Birders Week, we kind of pushed and advertised and promoted some of the podcasts that we've been listening to, um, some of the ones that we, that we promoted and talked about um, were Tyke James's uh, Onward, for, Onward for Wildlife and his other one, Brothers in Birding. And we also talked, um, put a little bit of stuff out there for uh, Black Nature Narratives. Um, which, which is one we'd never listened to. Yeah, not before, before. Not before and last it's week, put out two by, weeks ago. <laughs> it's put out by The Wild in the City, um, which is a UK-based nonprofit. And it was really interesting. They talked mm-hmm. The first um, episode that we listened to, they were talking to a lady um, that worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah. And so that, that was fascinating. So I'm so glad that we um, looked into some of these different... Uh, podcasts that are hosted by Black Voices, and um, you know we look forward to learning about more. So definitely, if you have a favorite, um, shoot us an email, get us so we can listen to it and learn some more. Yeah, and we also <laughs> put out there about time for your hobby. Um, Alex is a friend of ours. Uh, Eric was on an episode of his, and so yeah. he's he's not nature in generally, but he's he's all he hobbies. Talks about so, nature. So if if the if the hobby's about nature, he talks about nature. Yeah, so um, <laughs> definitely check those out if you get a chance, and I'm sure Eric will put those in the show notes so you can oh, yeah. um, have easy access to them. But this all is surrounded around the Black Birders Week, which was a movement started by I think there was about thirty uh, co-organizers of it and some of them were birders and some of them were herpers and some of them were fish biologists and so not everybody was specifically a birder but they all um, came together to you know say like hey there are black people out here that are birding and out in nature mm-hmm. and you know we belong out there and we want you to recognize that which I think was very powerful and we talked with Taiki for this episode um who was one of the the main co-organizers and just a super nice person. Oh, seriously. We <laughs> we spent probably 20 minutes before starting the recording and then it the recording was over an hour and then we stopped recording and continued talking for quite quite a while after that. It's fantastic guy, awesome conversation. We just I didn't I didn't know where to cut it off. So it's a kind of it's kind of long interview. <laughs> but it it just kept going and I was like, "Okay, well, all right, we're ending here. No, 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 we got it. And we just continue more and more. So it's, it's, you, you got to listen all the way to the end. Taiki's got some fantastic things to say and a lot of insight from both the backside from Black AF and STEM and then also from his position with uh, up in DC talking with all the congressional lawmakers and all these other big wigs that he gets to talk to doing, doing that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, if you haven't had a chance, definitely check out on Twitter. The account is Black AF in STEM, and then there's um, lots of hashtags that went along with Black Birders Week, including Black Birders Week, uh, Black in Nature are some of the the big ones. And mm-hmm. if you just type those in, then it'll it'll open up this whole world of um, Black Birders Week. So definitely check it out and um, you know learn about what what they're saying and how to be more respectful of um, black people in nature because, you know, nature is for everyone. And we hope that we're creating a positive um, nature environment for everyone, including black uh, birders and, and just in everyone. We want everybody to get out birding. One of the hashtags that, that we've used is make birding common because we want 
everyone to get out and enjoy nature, enjoy birds. And um, we were so excited. And just go birding. <laughs> and we were so excited that Taiki joined us because he's a fascinating person and a, a great speaker. And he was also booked for, I think he said, half the birding podcast. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty well, all, all of them out there. So if you, if, you, if you enjoyed hearing him here, listen to him over at um, the ABA podcast or over at... Um, um, the one that we can't say. Yeah, because we're a family friendly. Bird, but, bird, bird S, right? Yeah. Is that, is that as far as we go? I don't know. Anyways, the, it's all, he, he's, bird he's. Bird S-H, asterisk T. Asterisk T, thank you. So there, he's, he's going to be a bunch of different places over these next couple weeks. So it's, he, listen to every aspect he has to say. Hopefully we have a little bit of different conversation than you get everywhere else. But also, it's not just the podcast. I mean, oh, yeah. there's um, lots of these of the co-organizers of Blackbirders Week that were, you know, being interviewed for magazines and papers and think podcasts that weren't bird related. And, oh, CNN and then, articles, yeah, and exactly. Just ev- everywhere across the media, and it was awesome. Yeah. So, um, thank you. That that was our intro to Taiki. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, we re- hope you really enjoy it. Okay, well, awesome. Thank you so much, Taiki, for joining us for um, uh, another episode of Hannah and Eric Go Birding. We were so glad that we you were able to make some time in your schedule to talk with us about the amazing accomplishments that you and other Blackbirders have put out in the last couple weeks. Uh, but first, would you please tell us about yourself? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on, Hannah and Eric. Very excited to be here. Um, I was actually listening to your podcast uh, episode on Migratory Bird Day. I uh, didn't get to listen to the whole thing because time management is a farce. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was just getting into um, what you what you two did for Migratory Bird Day on, on May 9th, which seems like a year, two years from now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a little bit about myself. I was born in Philadelphia, uh, but I like to say I was raised around the country, and uh, that included some time in California, Wisconsin, and Texas before I came back to Philly to finish high school and what I like to call live out my adult life (laughs) before moving to DC, uh, which I did in 2018 to start a job at the National Audubon Society. And I'm (laughs) left-handed. That just to give the audience a context of where I'm coming from, where I lived and what my dominant hand usage so is. i'm that, so glad you said that because eric was like <laughs> when he was like looking at your face or your um twitter page that said mm-hmm. left-handed in the right side of mind or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he oh my gosh he was like i have to tell him i'm left-handed so I, eric, I have to i have to try to squeeze it in somehow but i'm so glad you squeezed it in already that's that, that's fantastic so we're, we're both left-handed that's yes, a very that's important thing to know about everyone yes. in this conversation left-handed but not left hand not not left out <laughs> I'm a righty. Like <laughs> mm. no, no, okay. Nobody cares about that. Wow. Yeah, right? Do you want a cookie? <laughs> wow. Yes, I do want a cookie. <laughs> I just wanted to be, you know, transparent. I'm a right-handed person. You guys are lefties, so. Wow. That's well, how it all I mean, works. I hope I hope you have more left-handed guests so that, you know, you can have a sense of uh, solidarity with your left-handed guests, uh, Eric, at least for you. I'm I'm hoping we can start moving towards that. A little bit more. <laughs> Are you gonna start asking everybody? Yeah, I'm gonna, that's gonna be the first question when we, when we ask someone if they can be on the pocket. Hey, are you left-handed too? Yeah, yeah. I'm you not know, interested honestly, if you're not. Yeah, right. Like if it's also if it's not in your Twitter bio, are you proud of it? <laughs> you know, like I lead with that. That's just like my first impression. 
Awesome. So, um, you you mentioned um, a, a couple things there. Um, lived all around the country, and then um, then now you work for the National Audubon Society. What what do you do for the National Audubon Society? What's uh, what's the uh, what's the job description? So the job description is half a page long, but I like to say that I'm a lobbyist for the National Audubon Society, but not like a real, real lobbyist that like wears a suit all the time and goes to the offices and shakes people down for answers. <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, I'm talking about bird conservation, right? I think that the best way to communicate the importance of bird conservation is taking out members of Congress and congressional staff on bird walks. So I use birding as a strategy, as a tool to, um, as, a, in a, as a federal engagement tool, or let me say it like this. I use bird watching as an engagement tool with decision makers. And um, that means, you know, doing the bird walks in their district, because that's where uh, often that member of Congress grew up, or that's often where that member of Congress had, you know, a, a great story about being in that park with constituents. And, um, you know, or, or the family of the member of Congress went to that park for Boy Scouts, or, you know, there's somebody who's, who's part of the friends group that they know that uh, helps out that park. Um, and when we talk about, you know, these concepts of, you know, putting money into pots so those the, the, that pot of money can help out this park and it can help out recreation and outdoor facilities over here. Um, it, it, you know, you can talk about all that when you're in a meeting, you can talk about all that when it's on paper or via email, but there's just nothing like going out and pointing at a flycatcher and saying, hey, you could protect that with your vote. <laughs> hey, you could protect that. If you talk to your boss, you know, your congressperson, your senator, if you talk to your boss, you can protect this. And you see how important it is to these constituents, which is often Audubon chapters and members of local birders that uh, know the area, that talk about the area, that appreciate the area, and that want to protect it. That's really cool. That sounds like so much fun to take people out that aren't birders and, like, point out birds and be like, look at how happy everyone is looking at these birds. <laughs> You, yeah, that's that's really it. So who's the coolest person that you've taken out? <laughs> well, I have not taken out in, personally a member of Congress to a bird walk for two reasons. One, um, it, when I started in December, the session is ending mm -hmm. and um, often scheduling for um, what the members of Congress do when they go back in district is plotted out when that when the session is over. So it was right before the blue wave. Um, and so with all these brand new Democrats and brand new freshmen, you know, all across the country, mm -hmm. um, their schedules are already full, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it was just like, congratulations, you know, you need to do a lot more constituent stuff and, and none, and, and bird walks are high on the list because again, <laughs> we can still get the point across in meetings and phone calls and emails. But the bird walk idea is just something that, that's often a cherry on top, but it really helps push the message. Push, push the message. Um, I will say that Brian Fitzpatrick is um, probably the most friendly, the most bird-friendly congressman, uh, Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. He is like the best friend um, of, of birding for me. 
as a first time birder. Like he, I wouldn't say that he's a birder, but he's definitely, you know, someone who talks about what his birding experience has been like when he's on the hill or when he's at a press conference talking about environmental stuff. And um, that touch point, you know, having that ability to say, hey, I care about this issue because I watched birds one time. <laughs> is honestly like the most meaningful thing to, to, can be the most meaningful thing to your constituents, you know? That's so cool. So do you have like a budget to take people out to lunch too? I always imagine if I was a lobbyist, you know, I would be like schmoozing and like taking people out to lunch and cigars and like, you know, making a whole <laughs> evening. <laughs> <laughs> you guys do that after is that your plan like take a birding and then um yeah make a day of it yeah go to mccormick and schmitz or whatever your fancy <laughs> restaurant is there well i think i spent my budget on binoculars and field guides so probably, uh, i don't think <laughs> unfortunately there's no spent. lunch you know unfortunately no lunch over here i mean maybe we can go to wawa right hey wawa um, is legit <laughs> yeah exactly like maybe we can go to wawa uh, for me that's always a good birding adventure beginning or end or middle hitting up wawa that message was not sponsored but i do think that wawa is an important part of the birding adventure and maybe yeah. you know we can have like 12 dollars for something like that you get a breakfast sandwich you get mm -hmm. you get a coffee you go out go birding go. and then you get yeah. you get a lunch afterwards yeah, exactly. We can we can make that happen. I feel like this happy. is not the first time we talked about Wawa. I'm pretty no, sure we did sure when not. we were living in Florida. <laughs> oh, there's Wawa in Florida. That's yeah. So nice. yeah, yeah, it's like a couple. It's like the Northeast and then like in Orlando. Yeah, oh. two, two little hot spots of, of yeah. Wawa. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. So, how did you become a birder in the first place? Well, birding started as a job for me. Um, I was an environmental educator in West Philly when I was doing my senior year at high school. Um, this man named Tony Crosdale and Dan Cubza. Um, Tony, he and I, we would later go on to become best friends. Uh, I was actually one of the groomsmen in his wedding, and he's really been a mentor for me through my birding life. Um, and, you know, we, we also have a podcast called Brothers in Birding, where we talk about what our adventures have been. And uh, when I was an environmental educator, one of the first things that I learned, in, like because he was the education manager of the program, one of the first things I've learned was a kingfisher. So he, you know, everybody in my cohort of you know environmental educators in training, we were all given a species to study. You know, look up in the Peterson Guide, look up on Audubon.org, look in the Sibley Guide. You know, gather all the information you can about this bird. You know, to, and then like basically a book report. Hmm. Um, and I think for me, it was maybe the week of or the week that I came back to work that I saw the kingfisher. It was a female kingfisher on top of a cattail sitting, you know, so I could see the crest, I could see the rusty belt. And then it jumped off and, you know, uh, did that swoop across the creek while doing the call. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, that's that was the thing in the book, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> There's a sense of joy and presence that I have in this moment that I didn't think I would get because normally when I do book reports, I don't read the book and, you know, I try to cheat off the, my other <laughs> classmates. But this time, not only did I not cheat, I enjoyed the, the result of, of like really digging into understanding what this bird is. And now that I've seen it in person, being present for that like gave me a joy that I didn't expect to find um, in doing that. But again, I started, it started for me as a job. So that was 
really a building block of, uh, of an educational method of teaching people how to teach themselves how to identify birds. Um, and that's something that Tony and I would, would often coin or, or say over and over, the principles of identification. So even in my story about the kingfisher, I gave you a visual, you know, like it's on a cattail, which is like a regular habitat in a riparian forest. Um, and I said the rusty belt, you know, because it, it's a female. And like, for me, that was, I, if I could get a tattoo of a bird, it is top three female kingfisher. Top three, huh. definitely. They're, yeah, they're stunning birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, w woodpecker, any, any woodpeckers on my top three of, uh, tattoos. of tattoos. Yeah. Well, affiliated would be number one, but. Uh, of course, of course. Um, actually, I've been I've been on a campaign to get the uh, pileated woodpecker renamed when it's identified in the city limits of Philadelphia. Uh -huh. I've been trying to get it to be called the affiliated woodpecker. <laughs> Has not been catching on as much as I would like, but you know, hopefully, this podcast helps elevate that. Um, <laughs> the affiliated woodpecker. You you heard you yeah, heard it yeah. here. We're gonna. <laughs> I don't know if we can call it that over here. It wouldn't really make well, any sense. Well, no. I mean, we have to go to that area. Yeah, to, we'll have to get yeah, over there. Yeah, so we'll like basically an e-bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you have to do. You just have to yell it out, and then people will be like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, he's seeing affiliated woodpecker. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh, you guys are nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, we, we asked you to talk with us about uh, some more serious subjects anyways but rather than goofing off but um not everyone in the birding community or in any community um wants to be a strong voice for something that they believe in and there's so few even among that group that have the confidence and guts to just stand up and and belt it out and st and stand up for what they're believing in so what uh what is it that drives you to be such an active advocate for environmental and social issues uh, thank you for this question. This is a really incredible question here. Um, so there's multiple answers to that question. I think one of the first answers is anger. I am often, there's often like a deep pit of anger into why things are like this. Why is society like this? And then um, I have never been someone who complains about something without wanting to do something about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like when you see like something, when you see something's wrong and you can do something about it, you know, you got, you got to be able to step up and make the difference. Um, when I learned how environmental health reflects community health, I started to understand that there were decisions that were made in our history that said, we're going to put resources here. We're not going to put resources here. We're gonna put the burden on these people. We're gonna lift the burden on these people. And seeing the legacy of those decisions uh, today, presently, um, is a constant reminder of the importance of um, not just speaking out against those ills and speaking out against those injustices, mm -hmm. but also doing something about it. And I think that there are a lot of ways folks can do different things. I personally, I'm in the advocacy role of, you know, what those solutions could look like. And, um, you know, working with decision makers without being one definitely um, is, a, is a source of motivation that like maybe I can convince these folks that this is important to 
a lot of people, this is why they should do this or do that or not do that. Um, but ultimately, I hope that what I'm doing is for a future generation that will not only be standing on the shoulders of giants of people like me that help push this stuff, but also I hope that I'm doing this for a future generation that's going to know better and that's going to do a lot better than we are. Well, and, and not have to experience what uh, this and past generations have been dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, I think that there is hope for a future generation of an anti-racist society, of a society that is no longer perpetuating white supremacy. And I think that that future generation is not only just worth hoping for, it's worth fighting for. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I really admire um, admire that answer and everything <laughs> that you do for so much you know. better than any answer we would give about anything, <laughs> any reason that we do anything. No, no, don't say that. I'm sure that like <laughs> deep down there there is a motivation, and whether or not you can put it concisely, whether or not you can, you know, articulate it to the tune of, I don't know, however I'm doing it, but. <laughs> that's not the important thing, you know, like the most important thing is that you know it in yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's something that when you make a decision or when you have a position on some of these things, think about how proud you're going to be when you're justifying that decision in for the future generations. You know, like if, if, you, if you're doing this now and you think it's going to make a difference, what do you think the future generations are going to say? Do you think they're, they're going to be like, hey, this person grabbed a bucket or this person just jumped overboard. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, yeah, I definitely think articulating it is part of like, at least our, our trouble. Like I know I, you know, I started my own podcast about women birders to try to advocate for increasing women in leadership positions in birding. And, you know, somebody asked me the other day, like, why are you doing this? And what are you doing this for? And it was like, I don't know because I'm a woman and I feel <laughs> passionate about it, but like, I just didn't have a good answer. And that's, you know, I like, I have that anger and that drive about like why women aren't doing, you know, aren't, you know, leaders of organizations or something like that. I just, it's nice to have somebody who does have like, you know, that you've gone through and thought about it and you have, ways in which you can uh, motivate people and, and advocate and yeah I'm really glad that you're there in that position and yeah that we have you with us <laughs> to talk thank to you thank about you it. It, it, it keeps me out of trouble <laughs> <laughs> so um, what barriers and challenges exist that impede people from recreational opportunities and careers in the environmental field again another really great question, one that has plenty of answers. Uh, so know that I will not be able to exhaust the full answering of this question. Um, but it is an important question I think folks should ask, uh, especially those folks in these birding organizations and these environmental institutions. Uh, typically, when I think of barriers and challenges uh, that exist currently, I think about what their source is and what their sources helps me think about how um, those barriers and challenges can exist for people uh, that aren't me. So I know that uh, a lot of the origin story of the conservation movement uh, came from a place of white supremacy and anti-Black racism. 
and it came from a place of cisgendered, mostly landowning males that are able-bodied and highly educated. So knowing that that is kind of the source of the conservation or the environmental movement, those it is not surprising to see that it is harder to get into that if you are not one of those things, if you're not an able-bodied, cisgender, white-owning, not white-owning, but <laughs> white land-owning yeah. um, male. Um, now, we know that demographically, there are plenty, there are a lot of white females in the environmental nonprofit industry, but a lot of those, um, that does not reflect the leadership of that, mm-hmm. of that industry, you know? Mm-hmm. So we do know that. Um, I think that uh, to, to answer this question now, for me, uh, I broke my ankle back in January. And um, I had an opportunity to meet uh, uh, Virginia Rose, who is yeah. the initiative driver at the Birdabil- with Birdability at Audubon. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that when we're thinking about barriers, we also need to think about physical barriers, you know, not just the institutional ones, but those physical barriers have been historic too. You know, and those physical barriers definitely create a culture that um, will exclude people. Even if you put up a ramp somewhere, um, there still is a embedded culture that that excludes uh, folks of different abilities. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm reflecting on that because, you know, I realized for myself, a lot of the birding that I have been doing often advantaged uh, or gave advantages to folks who are able-bodied and um, learning more and having uh, more uh, opportunity to focus on ways that I can make my bird walks more accessible has been a very rewarding experience and uh, one that has been very humbling. Hmm. Um, But, you know, in general, um, I think that you know, that is a great question that these bird organizations and these environmental institutions need to keep asking themselves because there, there are a lot of answers to it, you know, when you see it at a 30,000 foot level. Um, but when you, when you really zoom in and you see what you're doing and what you could be doing better, um, you know, you'll, you'll start to get really, really uh, concise and clear answers on ways that you can make your birding or make your movement more inclusive. Yeah. F- physical barriers. It's, it's a, I guess it's it's not a complicated issue like physical barriers out out on a trail, but uh, designing just the the whole idea of well we're all going to meet to do this and like at a place that is accessible to everybody, not only uh, physically but like location wise, like whether there's access to whether it, whether there's access to it, parking that, that there's, or a bus route that goes there, a, a bus route that goes there. So yeah, there's a lot to, to think about when it ter- comes to um, accessibility and uh, like the barriers that exist with getting, getting to someplace and then being able to go around and explore a particular spot. Exactly. And, you know, if I were to make a birding event where we're going to go birding and then after the birding event, we're going to go to the bar. Mm-hmm. If I know and if I pick a bar and everyone who's at the bar is, you know, over 411, you know, and they're at the high chairs or the high tables, you know, who am I excluding from that, from the conversation, literally, 
because they're, you know, they're, now there's a, a height barrier uh, for folks who may be in wheelchairs mm-hmm. or folks who may be, um, you know, just not able to sit in a high chair or, you know, whatever those bar chairs are at schools. Yeah. Or even, um, you know, minors or people that just re- don't want to be in a bar setting. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you realize that you are making, or I mean, I realized early on that I'm making decisions that will intentionally include and exclude people. And so, you know, having that sense of responsibility and how you're being inclusive, um, I think you you really have to know like the history of, of what these barriers and what these challenges are for many other people that may not be you. So for like daily application of this, um, if somebody were to lead, you know, consider leading a bird walk, is there something, is there like some sort of resources for things that should be considered um, when choosing location and time and all that stuff that you could direct us to or that like maybe uh, Virginia has come up with? Uh, yes, I think Audubon has birdability. It's like audubon.birdability.org or birdability is somewhere in it. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, and it's a great title. Really glad Virginia came up with that. But it worked with our GIS folks in the organization to actually map out and put features and, and, and you know, different symbols and things mm-hmm. to show, hey, if you're going to this birding hotspot, here's some things you should know. There's, there's places to sit, there's good lighting, there are no bathrooms, you know, or, yeah. or, you know, there, there, there are trash bag or, you know, there's places to put recycling and trash, uh, as well as bathrooms. There's a 24 hour facility nearby. Um, like the, just listing the accommodations or listing the features of that, you know, location is so much more helpful, um, when you're making decisions on where you're going and where you're not going, mm-hmm. because you know who you're excluding, you know who you're including. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know the DC Audubon Society, uh, on which I am a board member for, we are working on our website to do something similar, to make sure all the, you know, for, for DC, we know where we go birding, you know, we pick the same, you know, 20 spots, whatever it is. Um, and so we know we can say, okay, this trail, uh, make sure you're wearing boots because this is not a good place for sneakers. This is not a good place for, you know, regular walking. This is probably more rigorous or um, you should know that this is metro accessible and it has the bike stations by it and there's small businesses by it. So it's easy to get something to eat afterwards. Um, This place is wheelchair accessible. You know, we're saying that because it is, you know, we know for a fact that it is designed with uh, ADA compliance in mind. Um, because you know it's federal uh, it's a federal park um, so there's definitely like ways that we are just using information that already exists to help educate the masses and hopefully that you know increases the net of people who can look at birding and say yeah that's something I could do hmm. you know like <laughs> you don't have to be a birder but if you can look at birding and say oh, okay I could do that then that's good so that's what we want. do you think there would be a future um, opportunity to work with eBird to have like that sort of information listed on their hotspots? I think, uh, yeah, I think there should be. Um, unfortunately, eBird is just, I, I, w- I would imagine that it wouldn't be eBird. It mm-hmm. would be somebody partnering with eBird because um, now the way you 
do it is you put in the hotspot, you know, you put in your location after you do all the yeah. bird listing and stuff. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you know, if the, if on the website, when you go to explore hotspots, it'd be cool if they had some information about it. Um, but often for me, I just, you know, look up the hotspot and I Google the hotspot and I look for places and like, you know, I try to map it out myself that way, Yeah. which isn't always what people want to do. If that's all you want to, if you, if you just want to go birding, that is just so much more work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, we, we had that experience when we lived, um, away from our comfort zone. When we, when we lived down in Texas and in Florida, we were brand new places, never been there before. So we're looking at eBird and it's like, all right, so what? is over there near that spot and so we we'd have to pull up the google google maps and just like explore on google maps trying to figure out okay that's a really good hot spot but what what food's around what uh what how far is it from the nearest town like a lot of mm-hmm. like logistical um things which i guess it, it, it would be nice if ebert had but well i yeah. I, I think it's a, a, lot, <laughs> it's a lot to of stuff. expect that yeah. they would have like you know, food or anything like that. But I, yeah. and I know like eBird is there for a specific purpose and everybody mm-hmm. wants to make it something different yeah. uh, <laughs> because although it's a, you know, a wonderful program and everything, you know, there's still room for growth on different parts of it, but I would love to see, um, you know, accessibility information on there or bathroom information or parking information. Um, I think that would be something that would be awesome. It could be so, directly beneficial. So to we'll get Drew right on it. that. <laughs> Drew or Ian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Drew and Ian, if you guys are listening, that's that's oh, the next step. They stopped listening to us. They were so annoyed. At- <laughs> there are too many suggestions coming from us. <laughs> oh, man. Well, actually, uh, Deja Perkins, a friend of mine, um, she has done research on how eBird can tell you where and how affluent neighborhoods get better birds huh because in the you know how i said we know that there is a legacy of decisions that said these resources go here Uh not here these burdens go here and not here those decisions are oft are also reflected in ebird hotspots and deja perkins she has done wonderful research on it um her and i we're reshooting our our episode that we did because it it was her for her dissertation for her master's and um she actually had an opportunity i believe to speak to ebert about it um and i think there will be more to come from her but you know on the topic of ebert being a lot more or us wanting ebert to be more than it is uh ebert is a lot more than what we think it is too you know like it can tell us to some degree where affluent neighborhoods are in cities or you know in, in the county or you know whatever it is and she's um, at NCSU, right? I believe so. I was going to say it, but I was like, you know what? It's letters for me, and I don't know <laughs> well, I, I colleges up, anymore. I looked up her Twitter, and I was going to message her and uh, be like, oh, my gosh, I went to NCSU, too. And I was oh, nice. trying to figure out if we were doing the same program. Um, but, yeah, that I, I think there's an amazing amount of stuff that's coming out of North Carolina um, because I, I met somebody with Fish and Wildlife there that is doing mm-hmm. all of this um, retroactive, like, eBird information that, I mean, he had a way of getting information out of just eBird lists that was incredible, that something, like, I never thought of before, which I can't remember exactly what it was, but <laughs> I just remember, like, sitting and listening to his talk and just mind-blown, like, you know, these people are much smarter than me. 
I'm glad there's people like that in the world. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how I feel because again, I'm on the um, policy side of things. So, you know, I'm one of the, one of the organizers in Black AF in STEM. And, you know, the STEM part for me, I'm like tangential, tangential mm -hmm. to STEM because um, I will say in college, I was a math major. In fact, in college at Temple University, um, I studied mathematics and computer science with teaching. And I was really only good at two out of the three. And that's okay. You know, you find new strengths, you move on. Um, but I still really love math. And um, on, on the policy side of things, all of my talking points and all of the reasons that I am justifying my support for a particular policy is all founded in science. It's all founded in the conservation work folks are doing in the field and in the labs. It's it's good to know that there are jobs that people can have with SciComm. You know, that's not yeah. just like people on the internet, like telling, you know, doing that communication, but that you actually mm -hmm. have the application of SciComm to like a professional career. I think that's really cool. Yeah, and it's something that I didn't think was an opportunity until it was in my lap, to be honest. So I love uh, any opportunity to tell my story to hope encourage more folks that it's not a narrow path to get to this point. You know, it's not a narrow path by any means. That's very true. So um, we were wondering about how Black Birders Week got started and what has been your role in that? So Black Birders Week started after a racist incident occurred Memorial Day weekend to Christian Cooper in Ramble Park in Central Park in New York. And the Black AF in STEM was a group chat that was started by Jason Ward where a bunch of Black folks that cared about science that just, you know, it was just a good place for all of us to be considering COVID and considering um, how we know each other because we see each other on Twitter or, or Instagram. Um, but we haven't really met each other. We haven't really convened before. So that group chat was a really great like kindling that um, was the opportunity for the spark uh, that really ignited the, um, man, you know, after re reflecting on what happened to Chris Cooper, we were just like, man, it should be, we should let people know that it being a black birder is actually a cool thing. And with all of the things that are happening in the world, I think that, you know, I mean, collectively, we thought that this is an opportunity to rise to the occasion because we didn't pick our moment here, but we are definitely going to rise to the occasion. And the idea of a Black Birders Day was first thrown out. And then I was like, what if we made it a week? And then <laughs> it's just been like, or it was like just building a bike as we rode it, but the bike was also going downhill. So it was just <laughs> an experience extremely fast adventure very uh you know intense and all of it was virtual you know so it wasn't like this was a conference that we put together for seven days and all these events it was all virtual it was on twitter it was on instagram now it's on wikipedia uh, and <laughs> it was just a way to celebrate promote and highlight black birders and to really make clear the point that the Black experience isn't just one of trauma, it is one of strength and pride and resilience and style. And I think Black Birders Week did that very perfectly. Yeah, that's, that's just, so, so is your idea to make it, make it a, a whole week, did, was there, uh, 
was there anyone that was pushing it like no let's do a whole month let's let's do let's do an, let's do a quarter let's do a whole year well i think for me blackbirders day is every day um but uh as the black af and stem organizing group exists we know that we're not just birders we're folks who care about mammals and herps and fish i guess i don't know about fish don't get me started on fish <laughs> i hope fish twitter is listening <laughs> birds eat fish anyway um we think that there's actually an umbrella opportunity that really opens up for us to celebrate promote and try to get hired these black folks in stem because that's the bigger thing changing the culture of conservation um, it means more than just changing the topic on your social media for a week, you know, mm -hmm. changing the culture of conservation means completely changing the structure upon which these institutions and these organizations have benefited from. So again, we go back to anti-Black racism and white supremacy at the start of the conservation movement in the United States. And we have to realize that especially the older organizations have benefited and are perpetuating those benefits, um, or at least the benefits that they get onto them, but the disadvantages that they pass on to people of color and poor people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we know that there are ways to change that on the inside and there are ways to change it on the outside. And it needs to be a little bit of both as we're doing it. So I, one of the outcomes I'm looking for it's finding the ways that the folks who have helped organize Black Birders Week and the organizers in Black AF and STEM, I'm trying to look for ways to get those folks in jobs because we are going to be the new leadership of the environmental movement. We know that in 2050, the, the global majority is going to be what we call the minority today. So we need these positions now because we are going to be leading it in the future. Yeah, why why not start now? It's our it's every, everything's everything's trending. Why not start ten years ago? But why not at least why not start now? Like I mean, I just think if you know better, you should do better. Yeah. You know? Oh, for sure. So, um, do you guys see that this is something that you'll continue into next year and in the future going forward? Every year, have a Black Birders Week, or just continue the conversation throughout the whole year or like where, where do we go from here? Honestly, I don't see why not. I would love to look at this 10 years from now to see what it turns into. Um, but if I have an opportunity to get aspirational, I always will. There are two <laughs> things that I think would be a huge, huge, like, I don't even know if what's bigger than a dream, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, but the most popular family in this country, if, if we could go on a bird walk with them, you know, I think it would, I think the hashtag would be birding with the Obamas. Um, I think that would be kind of <laughs> cool, you know, I guess, or whatever, if they're free. I was um, trying to figure out who the most popular family was. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, if like, you know, you know, <laughs> Oh Lord. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Um, anyway, uh, think about that. I'm going to think about how I buried the lead on that. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe rephrase that in a future <laughs> request. Uh, but also there's this movie, there's this movie that really 
is the popular culture medium for bird culture of uh, the big year. Oh, we've yeah. heard of it, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you may have it may have come across. Um, uh, but the I would love a remake of that. And if there could be a remake of that, I don't think that remake can exist without Blackbirders Week in it. My opinion, you heard it here first. So <laughs> if there are two things, because that that in some ways is the culture of birding and the culture of conservation being in the national conversation, but in a way that shows it's not just white people doing it. And it's not something that is owned and only operated by white people. And is that something that can be a part of the black experience. And I think, again, Black Birders Week did a really great example of that but I would love to be aspirational and think that we can also do that if we did a big year remake or even went out birding with the Obamas. I think birding with the Obamas would be fantastic to watch. <laughs> do, 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 a whole, do like a, a two hour documentary of like, like you, you take, uh, you, you take them out over in the DC area and then uh, Jason Ward can take them out um, up in, up in New York. And no, he's in Atlanta. Is he in Atlanta now? I thought so. He, oh, he claims Atlanta. He uh, claims that, Atlanta. I mean, he's now? yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Don't get me started on Jason. Oh my gosh. But but, but, but people they, they they could go around the, around a different bunch of different spots around the country and just go just mm -hmm. go birding with with people and we just do do a two hour documentary and just watch <laughs> see see what their reactions are to like what it's like to experience nature like firsthand like that. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely. And I honestly think that like if somebody if if you're running for president in 2040 in 2024 um you should do a bird tour of all the primary states <laughs> you know like if you do that like people will be like oh i birded with this person a while ago like oh my goodness of course i'm gonna vote for them in iowa and in vermont you know yeah. like think about it don't miss the opportunity seriously there's there's a lot of birders out there and, and even mm -hmm. if they're not birders there's a lot of people that have heard of birding well, like, yeah, exactly. oh, well, he he went birding. That must, he's in touch with this, or she's in touch mm -hmm. with that. Or have we ever seen Joe Biden bird? I mean, maybe that's uh, something he can work I mean, on for this campaign. What I will say is, he fits the demographic. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. he fits the demographic of a birder, and but I've never seen him put up a pair of binoculars. I mean, the yeah. only president I really know about birding was Jimmy Carter. Oh. I knew about um, what's the young man Roosevelt. Roosevelt, yeah. Oh well, yeah, yeah, of yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't I know was... the peanut farmer was a birder. Yeah, I used to work at Benson Rio Grande Valley State Park in uh, Texas on the border, mm. and um, like we had staff that would go on and on and on about how they took Jimmy Carter out birding at the park. <laughs> oh wow! Which sounds okay, like okay. Yeah, experience. brag about it. Yeah, I would <laughs> brag about it too. That's smart. That's awesome. That's how you, that's how you get some street cred. You know, I would, of course, I would yeah, yeah. Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Nice. <laughs> so, um, so as um, as white birders and white podcasters, my myself and Hannah, how can we like help continue to drive this momentum forward that um, that you guys have gotten started and like without like trying to overpower or silence any anyone's voices how, how can we help support and continue pushing this momentum forward so um it, similar to uh the, when i was talking about the barriers and challenges know that you're making decisions to have you know to to do this over that and when you're doing this you are intentionally and unintentionally doing 
certain things. Um, knowing what those things are is very important uh, because you could realize that you're perpetuating something that you don't represent. Um, you may realize that um, you may be projecting something that you actually don't support. And, and so I think that's uh, having like a critical race lens on some things, having a critical lens on inclusivity um, is something that I do uh, or I try to uh, uh, help perpetuate. For example, um, I try to say they when I'm speaking about a general existing human being mm -hmm. um, because I understand that um, in some ways uh, I can have a bias towards males in leadership or, or females in other positions or just the gender binary in general. And, you know, as someone who knows that 90% of a podcast is listening to one person talk, you know, you're perpetuating what is being spoken. You know, we are literally speaking into history, how we talk about things and how we talk about things to each other. Yeah. Um, and I just think that you know, again, when you know better, you can do better. Um, and being able to justify and being able to speak to why you did something over something else is kind of like a really good example. You know, it's very good and simple example in, uh, I think, the practice of inclusivity. Because um, it's a burden that I think everyone has to carry. I think it's just a burden that only recently white people realized at least from my Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, that they have a role in too. <laughs> and it's just like, I, I saw of the mini memes, there's uh, there's like a, a tired white guy and then like a black guy with like a hiking backpack on. And like the white guy's like, ah, and the black guy is like, okay, we have a lot more to go. And you see that the benchmark that the white person just made is recognizing racism. And then the arrow that they're about to go to next is doing something about it. Yeah, and it's really just powerful. like, you know, when you know better, you should do better. Knowing better is the first step. Doing better is the next step, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I can't go around teaching people how to tie their shoes unless they start paying me for it, honestly. <laughs> um, because that's, there is an entire consulting industry that helps, uh, specifically uh, a consulting industry uh, that includes folks in the Rabin Group that support equity, diversity, and inclusion in your organization or in what you're doing um, that, you know, can be circumstantial and, and specified to, to your goals. Um, but I definitely think recognizing racism is one thing um, and then doing something about it is, is the next step. I will say personally, um, when I listen to a podcast, and it's white people, or I think it's white people talking. Um, and they talk about environmental issues, but they don't talk about white supremacy or racism, or if they are scared to say the R word, uh, or if they're scared to say the B word, the black word, mm -hmm. um, then I'm just like, this is going to remain in a soup of whiteness that has that will you know continuously stir itself thinking that this is progress because it's stirring but it's just really concentrating and becoming more of an echo chamber that actually concentrates it away from what we actually need 
um, which is, you know, the, the building of bridges of understanding and experiences of one people um, to, you know, realize that in this society, especially in this time, a lot of the benefits of this society have been pushed towards white people in a way from everyone else. And to change that, that means that we have to figure that, you know, I mean, uh, Bon Appetit was, a. have seen folks from Bon Appetit do really great. Uh, Claire Saffitz, she had an Instagram post about it that she knew and she, however she feels about it, but she knew that she was getting advantages that the people of color on the staff weren't. Hmm. And she knew that she chose to say nothing about it. And I think that that level of honesty and vulnerability is a really good model as a way that we can deconstruct the system that has always benefited and that continues to perpetuate the belief that the benefits of society should go to white people. That's, that's something that's, that's really like powerful and something really to think about. I've, I've recently seen a handful of posts online about like recognizing recognizing the advantages that like me as as a white person that I've I've received just purely for my whiteness and I've like thinking back so a lot of the things I was I've been ignorant a lot through my whole life that's my mo but uh hey ignorance is part of the experience right <laughs> exactly if you're if you're not not ignorant and learning then something's something's wrong as long as you're trying to learn but the um i've i've no i've looking back i've noticed different places that i've worked that i have not recognized that i did have specific advantages over my coworkers specifically because i was white and i can look i can look back at that and be like i don't I don't know, first of all, why I didn't recognize it. And then second of all, why, why it was happening, like, in government agencies, like, why d different government agencies I've worked for have done that? Like, why I, I'm getting these advantages and these coworkers that have been here longer than me, that have, that have know more, more, have more experience, are not treated the same way. So I, looking back, it's like, it's, it's so obvious that, something was something was fishing something was going on and I should have should have said something but in in the moment I just not only didn't but didn't didn't recognize it and didn't say anything and I I should have been better but going forward it's like now it's something I'm definitely going to be ha have to keep an eye for have to have to watch myself for my own biases and just try to be better now that I know a little bit better and, and the future generations will, will be grateful for that um, because it is something that there is no, I don't know if you guys got the instruction booklet on how to deal with racism at, <laughs> at, you know, in today's time, but my, my copy hasn't come in yet. So I'm really just looking at what our history has been. The 1619 project has been a really great opportunity to look at that. I've been seeing what decisions we have been making, especially environmentally, we know the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice as, uh, for me, that is just a hub of where I get a lot of my environmental justice information and how I learn where and how things are described um, when it comes down to where, what are the problems of the world. I often look at environmental justice and the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice is that place for it. They have and they work with folks who have a host of solutions and recommendations and guidelines to 
addressing environmental blight and addressing the climate crisis that we are currently dealing with. But one thing that I think folks are now starting to realize that you can't have environmental progress without combating and addressing anti-Black racism and white supremacy, whether it's in the organization that you work with in the, or the work that you do. You cannot achieve your mission if you are not addressing anti-Black racism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's, yeah, it sounds like a really good resource to check out, and yeah. we'll include that in the show notes. Yeah, that'll definitely be in the show notes to, for everyone to see. You, you mentioned early on that, uh, that you got into birding. I don't, I don't know how to transition, but... That was that was clean. Oh, no, that was no. clean. There's segways Segway. are so easy to buy now. Yeah. Um, speaking of segways, um, yeah. So I was I was gonna say, moving moving towards uh, your just birding in general, and you started a podcast uh, called uh, Brothers in Birding, and you're on the um, the Wildlife Obser Observers Network or Observation Network. Uh, Wildlife Observer Network. Observer Network. Yeah. Um, how, how's, how's that going? How's starting podcasting going for you? And how's, uh, how, how are your different uh, experiences going for that? Uh, so far, so good. Uh, having a broken ankle in the beginning of the year when we launched really helped me just sit down and focus <laughs> on, you know, getting the website ready, figuring out Squarespace, getting on Anchor, you know, connecting the social medias and doing all like the behind the scenes, under the hood kind of work, mm -hmm. um, which I actually enjoy. Uh, it's fun. It's kind of like a puzzle. And um, that, that's been one thing, just building the car, so to speak, and, and running it or driving in it has been a joy as well. I mean, this is something that I do in between you know, work and also my volunteer responsibilities where I serve on the board of two Audubon chapters as well as the state office in Maryland. And, um, you know, I'm also you know, part of regular calls with equity officers in the environmental industry. And um, actually, and recently uh, on a part of my board representation, I'm also on the board at the Academy of Natural Sciences now uh, because they have an ideal committee um, and you know, I'm glad that I can put in some work in uh, the, the Academy's new mission and new investment in inclusion, diversity, equity, access, and leadership, which is hmm. what I do advance for. Um, so finding time, you know, in between all that, I realized that podcasting is really now my creative outlet. Um, and Wildlife Observer Network is a, is a means to, to get that creative energy out. And um, I, you know, I'm someone who loves birds. I grew up, or at least my adult life, I've been watching birds. Um, and um, I appreciate what people say about birds. I appreciate the pictures that I see about birds, but I realize there's a lot more wildlife than just birds. And um, appreciating birds means um, that I also want to protect those birds to some extent. So while I have my um, podcast with my homie, Tony, I have my own podcast called Onward for Wildlife, where I discuss, you know, the politics of wildlife conservation, basically. And my first episode was on federal cruelty to coyotes, mm -hmm. which was a really great topic, an opportunity for me to learn uh, about the culture of 
uh, non-lethal or the culture of lethal wildlife management on uh, coyotes and how that is a disproportionate and ineffective method to uh, address human wildlife conflict. And I hope everyone listens to that. <laughs> um, I know I'm gonna you know, come out with a few more episodes soon, not just talking about Black Birders Week, but talking about the environmental conservation movement in general, like talking about labor in conservation because the labor movement and the conservation movement may not seem connected, but you'll, you, my theory is that it always was. And, and, you know, if you think about how and when people unionized and where they unionized and where they're not, I, I think that there's some interesting stories in there, especially when you look at the environmental movement. Yeah, that sounds like um, a really interesting take on all that. Exactly. I and I think listening. Wildlife Observer Network has been that, that, for me, it has just been this creative place where I can just put all of my energy into making something that's kind of cool. Um, in fact, I think I'm going to post a video today. You've just inspired me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to post a video today of a, of a stuffed animal that counts as wildlife. Um, because I love shooting because I have a Google Pixel now. Oh. And so I love shooting movie movies. And <laughs> and so I'm gonna I'm gonna post it, but it, it's just like a really weird video, but it's like dramedy. I realize that I love shooting dramedies, dramatic comedies. So it's like something that will make you laugh while you're crying, or or you'll laugh because it's sad. And it, it makes sense when you watch it. But again, Wildlife Observer Network is just my creative outlet for these things. Um, it's going to be a whole day. So I, I'm glad that it exists. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you are super crazy busy and still doing a podcast because it's like for, for us, we're like we're, we're not nearly as busy as you are, but we we're op operating the hotel like we're we're busy 24 hours a day with that. And then we try to squeeze in. Like, oh, well, let's let's see if we can squeeze in an hour this one day during the entire week that we can sit down and and talk about like this birding and podcasting and just that stuff. Well, and it just goes <laughs> to show how passionate you are that, I mean, you could be, you know, sitting on the beach for that hour, but you decided to go podcast instead. I think that yeah. really shows Or, or a interview lot. someone about uh, coyotes mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the different... Uh, management strategies that have been failing through the through the years yeah yeah i mean i i mean honestly like i said it's just stuff that i i see as it it it's just keeping me out of trouble honestly <laughs> you know it, it keeps my hands busy keeps my mind engaged and um i just thoroughly enjoy that i have a life right now where i can make the decisions to put my attention and put my leadership into something that I can take very seriously and focus on, um, knowing that it will hopefully, and it is intended to benefit folks who don't have that same opportunity. Because while I know I'm recording podcasts and volunteering my time on boards, that used to be time that I would spend at my third job or time that I would spend sleeping to get up early for my second job. Mm -hmm. And, um, knowing that folks are still doing that, whether they have now four jobs or no jobs because of coronavirus, um, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for opportunities to rise the tide for, for all the ships. Um, 
So, you know, if there's anything that I can do to help, you know, with you doing that, you know, you let me know because I think when you think about the difference between equality and equity, equality is equal resources regardless of the outcome. Equity considers what the what that outcome should be. It considers that there should be an equal outcome regardless or with heavy consideration to how we put our resources towards this thing. Um, and so I know that if we all want the same outcome, we're all gonna have to consider how we're starting at different points, right? Mm -hmm. Some folks are starting over there. Some folks are all the way over here. And imagine that I'm using that with my hands. Be <laughs> <laughs> me talking with my hands when I did that. And so we're, we're over here swinging our arms and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just swing your arms and maybe give someone a hug if you're around someone, because that's what I feel like doing. Um, but, you know, when you realize where you are and you realize that, you know, we're all trying to get to this same outcome, do what you can to lift as you climb and, you know, support folks where they are. Well, that 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 reminds me of of a picture I've seen about the equality versus uh, equity with uh, a fence, and there's a short person, a medium person, and a tall person, and mm -hmm. you give all three of them a two foot step stool, and the short person yeah. still can't see anything. The tall person's now it's up to their knees, and and then then you decide, okay, well, what's the outcome of this? So you make make adjustments, and with the same total footage of lift that you give each of them you'd make adjustments and now all three of them can see over the fence so it's just adju or, adjusting what you input to mm -hmm. so that you end up with the same or equal or close to equal result in the end and and to add i think that there's one uh addition to that meme where they just have a, a wired fence so everyone can just see through it without standing on boxes. Oh, yeah, I, I do remember. I think, I think that, was, yeah, I do remember seeing that part, yeah. And, and see, then that's a part of access where you're just like, well, what if we just made it more accessible to everyone regardless of height? Yeah. You know, like, what if we just didn't care about height and we just like, we want people to see the game. Mm -hmm. So them seeing the game should have nothing to do with their height. You know, just because you're tall, you shouldn't have a more advantage. And just because you're short, you shouldn't have a disadvantage. What can we get, what can we do to get rid of that entire spectrum of advantages and disadvantages? Make the gate see-through, yeah. you know? And, and that's, a systemic solution rather than a solution that is individual for each person. There you go. Well, we have talked about a lot in this last hour. So is there anything <laughs> else that you would like to talk about that we hadn't mentioned? I mean, I feel like I got my my, my big year, my Obama joke out. <laughs> those were really important. Had to mention those. Um, honestly, I hope you two have a good rest of your day and um, can, you know, weather the storm of you know whatever comes next with coronavirus and um that everybody you know and love is safe yeah you too that's yeah thank yeah, you thanks i hope the same same thing for you i hope everything with your podcast keeps keeps trending upwards and uh hope we can keep this momentum from the we that you guys started with blackbirders week to get uh keep that momentum rolling forward and make some real um systemic changes to what's going on in the world i appreciate that and i hope that uh, Tony and I can have you on our podcast, Brothers and Birding, because 
um, I, I already built so many questions in my head about like, well, how'd you guys get started? Is being married make your sound quality better? Because Tony and I aren't married. In fact, he's already taken. So, you know, like, should we consider that as like a way to make us better podcasters? You know, like, I just want to ask a million and two questions. I mean, about... you have to try. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's, there's no harm in trying. Okay. okay well, maybe exactly. We can, maybe we can come over to your coast sometime and, and hang out. That would be awesome. Um, definitely post Rona, post you know what's that called? Uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. We can vaccines actually mean cow. There's a podcast that talks about that, but um, <laughs> hopefully we can we can get together and do some more birding because uh, not only is birding a way to build culture and way to break bread with folks, um, but it's also uh, economic stimulus for the local businesses that are by the park and. Uh, it is an opportunity to also bring attention to restoration and conservation pro- projects that, you know, are important to us as birders because without those restoration projects or those conservation projects projects happening, we're not going to see the birds we want to see, honestly. Yeah, we, I, I, can't, I can't wait to get over there and go birding with you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't wait for all of this to be over and we can finally start traveling safely again and like get out and meet and meet meet you and meet all the other people that we've met online over the last two months that uh that mm-hmm. now we haven't had the opportunity to meet in person and, that and would go be hang awesome. out with <laughs> oh yeah oh well, yeah big time well thank you so much i'm very happy that we could do this well thank you so much taiki for hanging out with us for so long like virtually hanging out with us for, <laughs> for so long and and just chatting and just talking about everything we could possibly think of to talk about and all, all the insight that you have to DC and to the to and the black advocacy. birding communities, yeah, to the advocacy, to all all, all that stuff, to, your, to access, to your wealth of knowledge. Seriously, like we 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 talked about how we we are so happy that there's people that know so much out there in the world and can speak so much so deeply about different topics, and you're definitely one of them that knows so much about this. That <laughs> it's it's awesome to talk to you. So thank you so much for listening, and I have one more request before we wrap it up. Um, so our podcast anniversary is what we're calling it, is coming up soon, and we want you to join in with us. We did the bonus episode last year mm-hmm. of um, our secret question, and we have a bonus episode this year, but we want you guys to answer it too. So if you would like to do so, the deadline is June twenty second, 2020 at 5 p.m. Pacific Coast time. Um, so the, what you do is call the phone number that I will say right now, and we'll also put in the show notes. The phone number is 503-470-1664, 503-470-1664. I will not answer the phone, so don't expect me to <laughs> listen to the message, um, that it says, and then record the voicemail. So it's pretty easy. You just listen and then you give your answer. And I have had a couple people Call the phone number and not leave voicemail. So I'm assuming they're you're just... Scope, they're scoping it out and thinking about the question. <laughs> I don't know. That's not in the spirit of it, so don't do that. Yeah, but it's we, we'll, we'll pull that. It's, it's a Google Voice phone number. We'll, we'll pull all the, all the recordings from that and we'll add them to our, um, to our episode. So we'll have everyone that we interviewed that we asked the question to and then everyone that calls in. Yeah, so definitely do that. Um, like I said, the deadline is June 22nd. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it. Maybe learned something. 
Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us on the socials, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram. Our Twitter is at We Go Birding. Our Facebook page is Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Our email is Hannah and Eric Go Birding <laughs> at gmail.com. It's pretty repetitive. And our uh, website is GoBirdingPodcast.com. Tell us what you hated, tell us what you liked, and please share birding with your friends.